I really have no one to blame but myself for this. My petty outrage at people being randomly wrong on things that have nothing to do with the podcast. It's true. It's true. Um, We can often share in our petty rage, but uh, I was willing, I was totally willing to be the only person in this relationship who had read this thing. Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And um, just a heads up, uh, you know we're a young, fledgling podcast with only a handful of listeners, but if for whatever reason you're a youth or a parent, or just anyone who shouldn't be listening to not safe for work content, um, just, you know, maybe skip this one because it's filthy. It's filthy. Hey, you're the one who picked this week's topic. (sighs) Listen, sometimes people on the internet are wrong. They tend to be. Yes. And instead of leaving angry comments on their Twitter feed, you just decide to do research research that hurts your brain and your eyeballs and any desire to spend time with a heterosexual man that I have ever had. I'd feel sorry for you, but I did warn you when you picked this one. You did. It's true. It's my own fault. Well, you know, the advantage of this one getting the explicit label right off the bat, right? Oh my God, we can swear. Yes, you can. Thank Thank fucking God. There we go. But anyways, for those who either haven't looked at the episode title or don't know what it means, why don't you explain what today's episode is all about? Today, we will be analyzing one of the most grotesque, heteronormative, misogynistic, and plain old gross pieces of non-canon literature that has yet somehow managed to influence the genre for over 40 years since its publication. Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex by Larry Nevin. I feel like the name tells you a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. So, regala stuff. In 1969, Larry Niven, a science fiction author who's probably best well-known for his series Ringworld, which is considered to be so influential, it apparently has a Magic the Gathering card based off it. Are you saying you're not that flavor of nerd stuff? I am a Neapolitan of nerd flavors, Brooke. But fortunately for my bank account, I don't buy Magic the Gathering card. The only expenditure of mine is comic books. I feel like this is a metaphor that is very quickly getting out of control. Bold of you to assume it was ever in control in the first place. Anyways, so this guy, Niven, he's famous, he wins awards, gets to write Green Lantern for a bit. He's got a Hugo and a Nebula award and a Locus award and probably a dozen other awards that I can't be bothered to check his Wikipedia page for. I still can't believe he actually got got to write (laughs) Green Lantern after this. With John Byrne, no less. Yeah, I've got nothing. Anyways, it suffice to say that blah, blah, blah. Clearly, he's got imagination and writing skills. He's got some chops. We're lowly podcasters who have never published a book professionally. How dare we judge him? To be clear, um, this is absolutely going to be judging him. Oh, yes, for sure. You're hedging more than usual. Well, for starters, he's still alive, as far as I can tell. 
And I'm mostly just boggled at how many awards he's gotten when he wrote this thing. But yes. So in 1969. Nice. Nice. Niven publishes an essay in a men's magazine called Night. To be clear, we are talking about a Playboy type of men's magazine, not like men's health. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't find much in the way of sources for it. But any magazine that brands itself as the magazine for the adult male and publishes an essay about Superman's sex life isn't exactly going to be what we would consider a PG magazine. Charming. Don't you know it? The essay itself purports to be a realistic examination of Superman's sex life. Brooke, it's time for you to use your biology training. Because after reading this, I think all of my sex ed classes have been wiped from my brain. That's impressive considering how short the essay actually is. And yet, it's still too long. I I warned you. You can't say I didn't warn you about this essay. And yet I persisted in the name of research and proving the internet wrong. The essay opens up with dumb thing number one of 70 billion. Shaming Superman for supposedly being a virgin at the ripe old age of 31. Starting off strong, I see. It also goes on to conflate Superman's secret identity to a mental disorder, and then assumes that not having sex would compound that and make it worse. Because as we all know, not having sex is a mental illness. He also uses some mm, choice words that we won't be sharing on this podcast to describe this mental state. He then goes on to say that Superman has no father figure, ignoring that he had Jonathan Kent the entire time and eventually picked up Jor-El. Are you sure this guy was qualified to write comics? To be generous, he wrote Green Lantern like a decade after this. Maybe he did some research and some reading between then and this. You know, um, for someone who seems to know a great deal about all the different kinds of kryptonite and their effects... He sure seems ill-informed about a lot of important parts of the Superman mythos, like Clark as a person, for example. I guess knowing about gold kryptonite and some of the variants of red kryptonite that make things super big is more fun than remembering Clark has a father, two fathers, plus Perry White. I don't know. I've got nothing. He then goes on to explain that Clark has some sort of biological imperative to continue his species. Um, Being the biologist here, I guess he is endangered. Time to start cloning, I guess. Wait, Luther's on that one. Aggressively. Anyways, Niven then begins to speculate rampantly about what things Kryptonians find attractive. He wonders about scenting. Excuse him. What? If he is going to speculate about what a Kryptonian finds attractive, the least he could do is acknowledge their bizarre and very, very canon aversion to body hair. He should know this. He wrote with John Byrne. All body hair? Even eyebrows, Steph. Oh, my. Forget Lois smelling wrong. If attraction was purely biological instead of sociological, Clark should be avoiding her because she doesn't shave her eyebrows. He also compares Clark having sex with a human to both bestiality and homosexuality. (laughs) Great. Homophobia. I was wondering when we'd have this one show up. Isn't it amazing how none of these people can just act normally about sex? He then goes on to speculate about how sex would occur between Superman and a woman known as LL. What LL? Lori Lamaris? Lana Lang? Lois Lane? Lex Luthor? Probably not the last one, or the first one for that matter. I imagine the kind of sex that Niven is proposing is difficult for a mermaid. 
And don't you get into hypothetical mermaid reproduction. Steph, I would never today. I, I wouldn't for today's podcast. Oh, thank God. Laying eggs has nothing to do with the topic. Brooke! Yelling at me won't stop this essay from existing, Steph. Stop stalling and explain about Superman the peeping Tom. I mean, it's pretty basic. He just thinks Superman can't ever turn off his x-ray vision and as such is always seeing people naked and having sex. Well, it's x-ray vision, so don't you mean boning? You make me really regret being friends with you sometimes. And yet, here we are. He also says that during orgasm, Superman would basically have an epileptic fit and crush his sexual partner. I don't know if I have a pun for that one. Well, that's a first. Wait, sounds like Niven forgot the importance of romance having a crush. (sighs) And as usual, in a work about sex by a heterosexual cisgender male, priority is given to penetrative sex, which Niven has decided would rip LL open from crutch to sternum, gutting her like a trout. This is an actual quote. Just to remind you, this essay influenced an entire generation of Superman writers. I hate everything. You haven't even gotten to the fun part yet. Oh, you mean the Superman ejaculates with the power of a Gatling gun part? Yes, yes, that part. So the basic premise is that Superman, being super strong in every area of his body, would... You know, I'm just going to translate Niven's language here to modern slang without any consideration for biology, since he certainly didn't. Basically, Niven thinks that Superman has a super strong nut muscle that would punch through a side of a wall whenever he ejaculates. Nut muscle. You're the science gal. I'm a simple librarian and historian. You get to translate. You did pass your science requirement in college, right? I took computer science. So I did warn you that the sheer stupidity of this essay deleted all anatomical knowledge from my brain. This sounds like an excuse for the fact that you didn't want to look anything up. That's why I have you. So after noting that P and V sex would result in this hypothetical LL to be both crushed to death in an orgasmic epilepsy and then have semen bullets rip through her body to kill her instantly, he then proceeds to explain that how Superman's semen would be too strong to be stored in a test tube. This is an audio medium. So our listeners don't get to see the disgust on your face, but I can, and it's great. He then goes on to speculate that, honestly, the language he uses is really gross and awful here, but to paraphrase, he then speculates that during artificial insemination, that basically the sperm will just destroy any egg they encounter by overwhelming it with sheer numbers, and then will tunnel out of her body, ridding our definitely not lowest lane with tiny holes. And then they will travel through the air to artificially inseminate hundreds of thousands of ovulating humans in Metropolis. Somehow. Possibly using chemical senses to detect ovulation, which apparently Superman's super super sperm can do? I don't think this is a power that I've ever seen Superman have, even during the Silver Age. Yeah, that doesn't exactly seem comics code friendly, does it? Niven then goes on to suggest that then anyone pregnant with a Kryptonian child would leave the person dead because of the super-powered baby kicking their way out of the abdomen or laser-beaming their way out of the abdomen or rendering them sterile with x-ray vision. (sighs) Okay, so I know that comics forget this too, but like, 
Kryptonians gain their powers due to yellow sun absorption. With a fetus, it's internalized in a mammal, which means that unless something goes extremely wrong, a fetus should not be experiencing yellow sunlight. It should not have superpowers. Doesn't stop most Kryptonian bad guys from gaining superpowers the second they arrive on Earth, though. Yes, and that's also dumb and not consistent, which means, of course, um, I can go on many a rant about it. But I guess I can't entirely hold this one against Niven as much as it pains me. I mean, I know it's 1969. Nice. But isn't red sunlight stuff an option here? It's a lot safer than kryptonite in most canons. (sighs) Okay. Anytime we get into convoluted continuity of Superman comics and especially the effects of various types of kryptonite, things get squirrely. Red kryptonite itself has various effects that change depending on the story it's in. But the most famous and consistent power it has is to emulate red sunlight and thus lead to any Kryptonians being rendered normal by human standard. Considering this is 1969. Nice. And the heights of goofiness in the Silver Age, Niven could have relied on any number of explanations of Clark using red kryptonite to depower himself for these occasions without permanent side effects. But of course, Niven would need to be familiar with Superman lore or stories, which as we've gone into already, he clearly is not. Huh. Well, then Niven begins to talk about surrogacy, which would be really cool and forward thinking if it was anyone else. Plenty of people can't have children the traditional way, so surrogacy is a valid and important option to discuss for those couples. Niven, luckily, remembers that Supergirl is Superman's cousin, so at least he doesn't suggest that they have sex to continue the species. But he does suggest using her as a surrogate before rejecting it because it's 1969. Nice. And no one knows how to be chill about single mothers. So does he even have a solution? Oh, he does. Oh, no. Preg! Or, for those of you who are fortunate enough not to have witnessed that particular corner of the internet, he suggests that Superman, Daddy Seahorse the fetus. I'm... what? Yeah, the solution to Superman is too strong to reproduce with human women is Mpreg. And then he ends the essay on a prison rape joke. Because of course he does. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this objectively sucks. You know, it would be really nice if this had just been a one-off thing and it just vanished into the annals of history and you just dug this out as a joke every now and then. You'd know better than me that it's not. I can dream, can't I? Well, luckily we seem to be starting to move past this. But we did have to suffer through decades of people shipping Superman and Wonder Woman simply because she's the only woman strong enough to handle his manly machine gun penis. You know, like Twilight before it, after technically, but I read Twilight when I was in middle school and I read this as an adult, the solution to this is really Really simple. Uh, Allowing people to understand that sex isn't just missionary with the man on top? Correct. Anyways, Brooke, so tell me about the effect this had on superhero comics. While always being the residential super fan in my comic fan groups over the years has made me particularly hate this essay as just, you know, a point of frustration because I care about these characters and lore. What really hurts me about the insidious nature of this essay is its prominence in wider discussions about Superman through the years and the perpetuation of many harmful misunderstandings of reproductive and behavioral science. Which, of course, as our gorilla episode taught us, 
strikes a particular nerve for you. The fact is what I and arguably most Superman fans love about Big Blue is that at his core, Superman functions as a character as the complete antithesis to all of this. There is a place in narrative for characters we relate to more than we admire, but there's also a huge and often underappreciated need for people to have stories with characters who we admire first and relate to second. We don't love Superman because of his power creep or debates about whether or not he or Goku would win in a fight, though, um, to be clear, those are very fun. I don't know who Goku is. It's fine. We'll, we'll get there eventually. My point being, what we love is the concept of a character who has the power to do good and to be a good person. And while constantly facing temptations and obstacles manages to do the right thing or when he falters he's strong enough and responsible enough to admit wrong and try again that is who superman is that is why he has endured for almost a hundred years and that is also why lois lane is important lois from all the way back to acting comics number one has been our framing device for clark's morality for krypton before even the kent family Lois Lane was providing the sense of morality in the face of a difficult and corrupted world. Superman's original tagline, as we talked about in our KKK episode, was the champion of the oppressed. But as Clark Kent, he was not often the receiving end of these events. Lois, however, was. And while Clark would often allow his reported persona to fade into the background during conflict or feign weakness to draw attention away from himself so that he could switch to being Superman... Lois couldn't, and she wouldn't. Standing up for herself and for others involved Lois Lane bravely putting her name on her exposés and reporting, and she was easily identifiable as the only female reporter on the beat in any case. Considering Nevin's visible lack of understanding for Clark, Kent's side of the character, or the importance of his large and colorful supporting cast of human characters Superman loves and cares for, it's pretty clear to a superfan that Niven lacks comprehension for the narrative importance of Lois Lane or Jonathan Kent or Lana Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Perry White. It's that Superman doesn't have to be Superman. He doesn't have to choose to be good or stand up for others. He does because he's a good person. And he's a good person because he's constantly in awe and admiration of wonderful people around him. How can he be anything less than Superman when he has the power to do so and can look and see the bravery and goodness of people who don't have invulnerability and don't have the ability of flight, but are still fighting for the good fight all the same? It doesn't help that this essay came out at the height of the comics code authority, which neutered, pun intended, a lot of the very clear narrative for Superman that had built up over the years prior to the CCA. People who hadn't read Superman comics since they were children, but were old enough to buy Night Magazine or its later republishing and other even more prominent men's entertainment magazines, would read this dishonest take on Superman, absent of his established morality or the narrative importance of his love for Lois Lane. And they could then probably pick up a Superman comic from that same week and see some tyrannical backwards adventure from the Silver Age where Lois Lane is only interested in getting married rather than finding the next story. And Superman is using his cavalcade of new superpowers to melt Jimmy Olsen's popsicle for no particular reason. While I'd argue a new 
renaissance of good Superman stories and better characterizations for everyone were just around the corner into the 70s and 80s. To ignore the impact of Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex ignores how we've gotten to the point we are today. Writers devaluing the human supporting cast of Superman, constant flirting with the concept that Lois Lane isn't physically matched to Superman while bringing in superheroines who supposedly would be better, but not in a emotional compatibility sense. And worst of all, in my opinion, the incredibly dangerous precedent of saying Clark Kent as a persona is not important to understanding Superman's morality. It all comes back to this essay and the current writers and artists who grew up with its narrative without examining how wrong it was from a point of narrative, lore, biology, and even morality for us today. Over the years, Niven and his essay have actually popped up a lot, not just in in the comic sphere, but in a surprising amount of real life and cultural places. Policy and law have had documented influence from Larry Niven as as a person, not necessarily only from this particular essay, but from his broader work as a whole. So while today there tends to be a lot of people writing off this essay as being a farcical or humorous attempt, or even as not having intended a lot of the grosser opinions clearly that can clearly be read into it today, the consequences of his work and his prominence have been unavoidable. Imagine writing a supposedly comedic essay that demonstrates rampant misogyny, clear misunderstanding of established materials, and basically making decades-long laughing stock out of one of comics' most important and bankable characters, and then being handed the reins to an entire run of another popular character by the company a decade later. Don't read this essay. It's honestly more depressing than hilarious to read when you think about it for more than five seconds. So instead of wasting your time on a sexist essay, you should waste your time on reading amazing comics in spite of it. Uh, For this week, I knew almost instantly after we discussed the topic that I had to recommend a good Superman comic that actually bothers to understand Clark, the importance of his human family and connections, and examine the heart of this comics legend on its real merits. Which means, at long last, I get to recommend what is probably my favorite Superman comic of all time, Superman's Secret Identity by Kurt Busiek and Stuart Amonin. This four-issue miniseries follows the life of Clark Kent, just not the one you think it would be. Instead, we see Clark Kent born in our world, a world with the cultural impact of Superman comics and media we all know today. And while growing up, resenting the constant comparisons to this fictional god, young Clark comes to realize he's actually Superman himself and spends a lifetime rediscovering what the Superman comics have taught all of us. The importance of being a hero, a good person, and loving the people in your life. It's the absolute antithesis of Larry Niven's essay and made by creators who obviously truly love what Superman really is. You know, fighting a wreck for this one was difficult. What do you even recommend for an episode when we talk about bad sex and, well, mostly sex? And then I figured to be the complete opposite end of the spectrum for Brooke, since this is already a very, very explicit podcast, <laughs> I might as well recommend a very, very not safe for work comic. So I'm going to throw out a rec for Sunstone, written and drawn by, I'm sorry if I butcher his name, Stepan Sijic. Sunstone is a kinky, humorous, slice-of-life BDSM comic that tells the story of two women slowly coming together sexually and romantically. 
and figuring out how things out as they go. Sedgwick is a personal favorite of mine in terms of artists for how he draws women in a way that is far more realistic in their sexiness and how his characters who have sex seem to actually have fun. It's not all pinups and forced high heel standings and being suction vacuumed into a latex suit. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating. We'll need it for this episode (laughs) or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about the state of Superman's childhood bedroom, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. want to remind you the first time I read this essay I was like 17 my god I know what was wrong with me